I'm happy to be in Bakersfield. Uh, I think, you know, I've been to Bakersfield a hundred times. I live in, in Los Angeles, and I have a lot of friends in Kingsburg. In a, I can't get into the details, but I go to the dentist in Kingsburg. I know, it doesn't make sense to my wife either. But So I've been through Bakersfield innumerable times. And once, I, I just want to begin with this kind of public apology. I, I made fun of Bakersfield on the podcast, and, and some of the friends here, and there are many friends here, uh, called me out for it, including your pastor, sent me an email, and basically told me since I did that, I had to come speak at this conference. So, but I'm, I'm a little bit mixed up because I thought I understood Bakersfield. But this, this is different. This church is lovely. The people are kind. I mean, I, I've experienced nothing but warm and gracious hospitality. I mean, this is, it, I mean, it's even refined and elegant here. I mean, your pastor plays an exquisite trumpet. He's an intelligent and engaging preacher. Uh, this is a cosmopolitan place. A, a Canadian man was singing in Spanish. I just refuse to believe I'm in Bakersfield. <laughs> now, it is a joy to be here. And the only reason I can tease and gently chide Bakersfield is because I am from a worse place, Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, notoriously worse. And I live in what I think is considered a failed state, and that's Los Angeles. So, a third world country even. So, I'm, I'm really happy to be with you and grateful for the invitation to open the Word of God on the highest possible theme that we could ever uh, approach. It is uh, the person of Christ, His humanity, uh, something that is so crucial to our worship and our salvation has been shown to us so well already in our time in the Word of God. And so uh, I'm switching my sermons because Pastor Steve gave me permission to do that. I'm not going to preach my Hebrew sermon until uh, the final session today. And so, for those of you who are keeping track in the little guide, uh, I'm going to preach from Romans uh, this morning, the, the, the book of Romans and chapter 5, verse 12 to 21. And so, that's the sermon that's before us, uh, the book of Romans, verse 5, 12 to 21. And this is such a a crucial passage in thinking about Christian identity and Christian existence and all that depends on the humanity of Christ. And I just want to add this note to all that's been said and will be said throughout the weekend. Uh, and I think Romans 5 has something compelling and important to help each of us personally see the significance of the humanity of Christ for us and for our destiny. So let's begin with Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. Romans 5, verse 12 through 21. Therefore, just as though through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, 
but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the Word of the living God. Who are you? How do you think about yourself? How do you answer that question? Who are you? It's common. It's introductory. It's basic. And it intersects with something that is completely confused in our world today. At one time, a person could easily say, I'm a man from Bakersfield. But even that binary association is no longer culturally normal. The identity of a person is under attack, and it's no longer something that is concrete or God-given in the minds of our neighbors. Instead, it's something that is subjective and self-defined. No longer do people say, well, I'm, I'm a blue-collar worker, I'm a I'm a plumber, I'm a high school student, I'm I'm retired. Instead, the whole idea of our identity has been assailed and assaulted as it's been ripped away from the basic fundamental aspects of life we have as, as creatures made by God. Who are you? Most of us would say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm a I'm a believer. 
And when we say we're Christians, we understand that we're a certain kind of Christian. Maybe you grew up Baptist or Presbyterian, or you go to a a Bible church and you think about what kind of Christian you are. It's not how Christians would have defined themselves in the earliest years of the the Acts of the Apostles. Christian was a slur, was a, a term of derision applied to them. It's used only three times in the New Testament, uh, and it was not in those earliest days the, the common nomenclature for identifying yourself. Instead, they would say something like, I'm a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. I follow the way, John 14.6, when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That's what the earliest Christians were called, and that's how they identified themselves. But in an age of increasing identity confusion, uh, Christians are feeling even more singled out, even more persecuted, even more awed and strange in a society that doesn't even know who they are. Carl Truman wrote a definitive book in 2020 called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. In this book, he attempts to trace the changing understanding of human identity in societies through the Western world, through the Enlightenment, through philosophy, and through an increasing emphasis on a psychological approach and a sexual approach to thinking about our identity. There's something else that that Truman identifies in his important work when it comes to thinking about who we are. And it's that he thinks of us too often, or we think of ourselves too often, as lamenters as so overwhelmingly outnumbered by a confused society that we are hopeless to see any change. We see this on a political scale, on a cultural scale, in so many different ways. And and in Truman's book, there's a section in the introduction where he writes this. This book is not a lament for a lost golden age or even for the perilous state of culture as we now face it. Lamentation is popular in many conservative and Christian circles, and I've indulged in it a few times myself. No doubt the Ciceronian cry, O tempora, O mores, the times, the customs, has its therapeutic appeal in a therapeutic time like ours, whether as a form of Pharisaic reassurance that we are not like others, such as those in the LGBTQ plus movement, or as a means of convincing ourselves that we have the special knowledge that allows us to stand above the petty enchantments and superficial pleasures of this present age. But in terms of positive action, lamentation offers little and delivers less. As for the notion of some lost golden age, it's truly very hard for any competent historian to be nostalgic. What past times were better than the present? An era before antibiotics, when childbirth or even minor cuts might lead to sepsemia and death? The great days of the 19th century when the church was culturally powerful and marriage was between one man and one woman for life, but little children worked in factories and swept chimneys? Perhaps the Great Depression, the Second World War, 
the era of Vietnam, he concludes with these words, Every age has had its darkness and its dangers. The task of the Christian is not to whine about the moment in which he or she lives, but to understand its problems and respond appropriately to them. It's easy to complain. It's easy to whine about our world. The lostness of it. The fallenness of this place. The depravity on massive display. But it's something else to understand it and to respond to it. And I believe that Romans chapter 5 can help us understand and respond to this world by giving us a clear depiction of who we are. Not just in this particular age in 2022, not just in this particular place and generation, but instead a cosmic look, a a big scale, a, a historical movement of all of human history to show you really who you are. And the answer to that has everything to do with the humanity of Christ. The central point of Romans 1 through 8 is the issue of justification. That's the glorious theme of of this letter that we have opened before us. It opens by reminding us that God revealed Himself and we rejected Him and worshiped the creatures and the creation rather than our Creator. Paul told the Roman Christians that unbelief condemns both uh, the pagan sinner and the righteous person, the religious person. Paul showed us in these chapters that lead up to Romans chapter 5 that sin is universal, that none are exempt from its consequences and its grip. We're told that it's always been this way, that salvation has always been dependent not on fastidious keeping of the law, not on uh, relationships or birthrights, but salvation has always been because of faith, always through grace. And it's the burden of Paul to the Romans to show them from their own spiritual heritage, those who came from uh, Judaism, that this is the case with Abraham, chapter 4. And this is the case with David in chapter 4. That God is about the business of justifying sinners. And by the time he gets to chapter 5, which I think is this, this glorious high point of Romans 1 through 8, he's concerned that they would have a taste of things to come. Chapter 5 opens with that taste, that uh, being saved through grace by faith, being justified, being set right with God, being declared righteous, being forgiven and set in a place of divine favor and blessing is something that comes with extraordinary results. And chapter 5 starts to list those wonderful results. You remember peace with God in verse 1. Hope. And even in the midst of of tribulation and persecution, the love of God poured out through the Holy Spirit. And at this point in the, the book of Romans, there are 
two features that have have grown out of of his understanding of of the gospel and this central doctrine of justification. There are just two conditions. There's the sinful condition that that all of us have, and then there's a, a justified condition that those who by faith through the grace of God, have experienced have. And so he he zooms out on this and shows us that these two conditions, one of of our sinful humanity and one of those those who have been justified by God's grace, those who are identified as, as belonging to God and forgiven by God and trusting in the work of Christ because of the grace of God, has come into focus of these two humanities. Depicted in Romans 5:12 through 21. Two different humanities. This isn't the only place in the Bible they're described. 1 Corinthians 15 describes a first man and a second man. But what's happening in this section of Romans, in this massive zoom out, in this look with altitude at the entirety of human destiny, of the fate of the human race, the composition of all of mankind and all of history. He looks at all history, at every destiny, and at true identity and sees it all as bound up here. Your identity as a Christian has far more significance than just that that day you first believed and that day that you individually were justified when you saw your sin for what it really was and you turned from your sin and you you cried out with what little knowledge we had in the day of our conversion to the the grace of Jesus and you found the, the love of God on display at the cross and the power of God's provision in the resurrection when you when you saw that your first glimpse at that you had no idea what you were getting into right you just knew that you had a burden of sin and and there was an offer to have it lifted but what Romans 5, 12-21 is telling you is that your identity is bound up in all of human history in a plan that, that God has that is far more than just your individual salvation. It includes, gloriously, your individual salvation. But a, a larger narrative, a larger story that is the story of the entire human race and the glory of God and the entire destiny of that human race bound up in the identity and accomplishments of two men two men compared and contrasted in these verses and i'd like to look at this passage with that kind of altitude unable and unwilling to get into the weeds of Romans 12 through 21, one of the most complicated and dense passages in all of the New Testament. I don't think it lacks simplicity, though, if we look at it from from some height. And when we look at it from above, I believe there's three mountain peaks that, that we can draw out of it the understanding of who we really are because of the humanity of Christ. And so let's look at these three glorious peaks in human history as Paul compares first off two men and then their two 
deeds or actions and then their two accomplishments or effects. So we'll look at two men, two deeds, two effects. Well, this passage clearly lays out two men. The first is Adam. He's referenced in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world. That one man is Adam. It's a reference to the opening chapters of the book of beginnings of Genesis. This is the the one man, Adam, whose name means man, who is equated with being the very first man. And Adam is the father of all humanity. And what these verses portray is that all of the human race are underneath this one man and suffer the consequences of this one man's choices, this one man's existence, this one man's legacy. And this man is Adam. And he functions as the father of all of humanity. And it's clear that this this argument has to do with Adam and the consequences that all of us bear because of what he did. And the consequences for his entire family are on display. A dark and frightening display because of what he did. And maybe at the outset we're already prone to think in our fallenness that that's not entirely fair. That we receive consequences for what someone else did. You could say, I wasn't in the garden. No talking snake beguiled me. I didn't. I mean, my wife is, is from Bakersfield. She's not from Eden. I wasn't there. How is this fair? But I doubt you'd hear that kind of thinking from someone in the Walton family. Walmart. $247 billion fortune in that family. And not very many of the descendants would say, we should distribute this. I think you'd be pretty glad if you were born into the Walton family. Privileged even. Or the DuPonts. Or you wash your hands in the sink and you see that word Kohler on the back of the sink. And you realize the Kohler family has kept that fortune together for $11 billion worth. Or you drive up the coast and you see Mr. Hurst's castle and you remember that his descendants have uh, the claim to $21 billion. And if your last name is Rockefeller, you're quite grateful for your great-great-grandfather. Or if you're a Kathy, you get unlimited Christian chicken and $14 billion estate. And so we understand the responsibility and nature of an inheritance in a positive sense. Well, it's just as valid to consider the reality that all of us came from our parents. Uh, 
And that came with particular benefits and particular disadvantages. Or call them realities, to be nice to mom and dad. And that's true on a massive scale because all of us come from our father, Adam. On a historical scale. This is one of the reasons it's so important that Christians affirm that Adam was a historical figure, an actual person. And these two persons in Romans chapter 5 are presented as actual historical persons, as individuals who represent their progeny, their offspring. And so Adam is our father and he represents all of humanity. That word all is used repeatedly throughout these verses to emphasize the ongoing and pervasive effects of Adam's family line. But there's another person on display in these two humanities. And one we enter by birth, all of us. Not by choice, but by birth and by nature. We are all a part of the family of Adam. But there is another family on display, descendant from Adam, whose head is another man who is identified as Jesus Christ. Verse 15, the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And so the comparison and contrast is now set. There are two men that define all of human history and their lineage is where you will find your identity. All of us under the the curse of our father Adam because of the choice that he made that day and those who enter by faith into Christ as His disciples, as His followers, little Christians, see as our patriarch, our father, our head, the leader of our humanity, this one Jesus Christ. And like Adam, He too serves as a father of a new humanity. Last night, We read from the book of Isaiah. Remember that? I don't remember who did it. Somebody read it in English. And it was that famous passage that we usually associate with Christmas, right? A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Eternal Father? Now, that's either some sloppy Trinitarian language from Isaiah because God the Father And God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are, as we learned in our first evening together, in glorious trinity, tri-unity. 
One God, three persons. Jesus is not the eternal Father in the sense of this conflation here. Why Why does He use the phrase eternal Father to describe the Messiah? Well, it's not a confusion between the the roles within the Trinity. I think that's a reference to what Paul understands in Romans chapter 5. Jesus is the eternal Father of all those who will be underneath His lineage. Who will be His successors, His followers, His family. He will be the head and the Father of a new humanity. Part of God's eternal plan to bring glory to Himself. And just as or because one man plunged us all into sin, and from that man who had the image of God on him, we move into bearing that same image, yet also bearing the consequences of His actions. We also bear the consequences and image of Christ as our eternal Father. One man plunged us all into sin. One man could redeem and rescue his family as well. And all of it is by nature. We're children of Adam and sin and death is part of who we are. And those are the two men that stand as as heads of their families. As the ones when you zoom out from human history, you see these two men that can show us exactly how we got to where we are, both in our humanity as sinners and in our identity as Christians. All of us in Adam, sinful through and through, depraved and lost and seeking and serving ourselves and not our Creator. All of us who are under Christ by faith because of God's grace find ourselves in a justified condition, a place where we have been set at right standing with God. And that's because of these two men. But this passage also emphasizes what these men did. And so let's move to the second mountaintop. This peak is two actions or two deeds. And on one side of the deeds, if you could summarize them in a single kind of word, that Adam's deed is trespass. And Christ's deed is gift. Those seem to be the words that would best encapsulate the many words that are used for the actions of both of these heads of our family. These both markers of all that we are, both in our humanity and in our salvation and redemption. Trespass and gift. And the emphasis of these verses is on clearly the superiority of the one's work over the invasive and extensive influence of the other's disobedience. In other words, we hear words like much more. Grace abounded all the more. These two deeds are compared 
as to their effect on the lineage that follow these men. But these two deeds are contrasted in that the work of one of these men is far greater than the work of the other man. The first man's work, though his influence is undeniably vast on the entirety of the human race, all, 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 the work of the second man, the second Adam, the second a leader of this humanity is a work that is far more glorious and far more notable. And its contrast to what Adam has left to his family makes it shine all the brighter. And so Jesus Christ's superiority and the greater impact of His work is seen in light of the disaster that is the deed of Adam. And the deed of Adam is is described in various synonymous ways. Look at verse 12. It says, uh, the one man, Adam's sin, which leads to death, which spreads to all men. Verse 12 speaks of the encompassing nature of his sin. It says, all sinned. Verse 14 speaks of Adam's Deed as an offense, a breaking of a law, of a standard, of of God's will and word. There's an offense there. There is a party who has been wronged, and that party is obviously God. In verse 15, it uses the word transgression or trespass, leading to, verse 16, condemnation. And if we summarize all of that with this word trespass, what is it that Adam did that he left to all of us? Well, verse 19, in a cumulative way, says, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's our legacy, friends. That's our identity. We are sinners. We are disobedient. And though Adam's sin in that moment in the garden that's familiar to all of us at the beginning of human history was a momentary sin. It was a sin that was a bite. It was a sin that was a choice. It was a sin that was a a rebellious hour. It was not a a long, protracted sin. It was a sin that happened on a day, in one act, in a moment, that led to a life of sinning and plunged all of His followers into peril and ruin. This is the deed of Adam. But in comparison, Christ's deed, in verse 19, the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Christ's deed, if we were to summarize it in one word, is gift or obedience. In contrast to what Adam did or failed to do, Jesus, not in one act, but in a lifetime of perfect 
obedience that culminates in his obedient death. That is the gift that Christ gave to us, his own life. Philippians tells us he was obedient even to the point of death. But that was not just a single act of obedience. It was the entirety of Christ's obedience. A perfect life lived in submission and obedience to God. Where our first father failed us and plunged us into a life of sin and rebellion, of lust and wrong thinking and rebellion against God and a failure to worship him as we ought to worship Jesus's obedience which was prolonged over the 33 years of his life and culminates on that Calvary hill where he hung and died in perfect submission to the Lord without any sin without any guilt to bear our sin and our guilt makes it all the more stunning because Jesus is the only obedient one Only Jesus is the obedient one. Of all the race of Adam were sinners who disobeyed and disobeyed and tried to teach their children to stop the cycle, right? Maybe it's just my kids. You've got to obey your mom. But they can't do it perfectly. They won't do it completely. And then they become teenagers and it's worse. One of them was a flawless teenager. A perfect infant. A perfectly obedient child. Jesus, the man Christ Jesus, was under that same condemnation because He was a son of Adam, but He lived in perfect obedience to God. And that's the gift He gives to all His offspring. A gift that not only counteracts the curse that Adam's gift or deed or trespass left to us, but a gift that overwhelmingly not just compensates for what Adam did and what we did in Adam in our fallenness and in our sin, but a gift that lifts us far higher than the garden and the beginning and the fellowship with God that was known by Adam before his sin. And that moves us to this third peak, which is the two accomplishments or the two effects What we see here gloriously is that all that Adam lost, Jesus Christ has regained far more. Adam plunged his entire race into sin and death, but Jesus takes his entire family, all those who enter into him by union and faith in the work he has done, in his perfection, who take his obedience as their own obedience, as a free gift of God's grace, Jesus has regained far more. Adam expelled us all from the garden, rightfully so. If we were there, we would have made the same choice because we are his true sons. But Jesus not only reverses that curse and brings all of His people back to the Father, in Adam all died and sin 
entered and reigned. That word reigned goes over this passage over and over again. Verse 14, it reigned. Verse 17, death reigned. Death was king. But there's no king like King Jesus. Because in Adam all died and sin entered and reigned. But through Jesus, in Jesus, we find grace and obedience and atonement. And life comes to those who follow after Him. Sin no longer reigns. But righteousness and justification and grace reigns. I love how this passage concludes. Verse 21. Verse 20 says, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. John Murray, in his exceptional commentary on the Epistle to the Romans, I'd commend it to you. All the stuff I skipped, he handles. In his excellent commentary, he speaks about the movement the movement of these three realities because of the two men and their two deeds and their two accomplishments. And the movement of the first man is a movement of sin, condemnation, and death. It's an unavoidable and unbreakable chain when you're in Adam. Sin and condemnation and death. Sin and condemnation and death. It's natural. It's automatic. It's what we're born into. Sin and condemnation and death. The ruination that we experience in this fallen world is not so absurd and detestable to us as our society seemingly spins out of control. This is who we are. It's not that the trans activists are bad. It's that we are bad. Every one of us. It's why when the Apostle Paul lists all those vice lists in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians and such were, you know, you were thieves and drunkards and homosexuals and, and all the stuff, all the bad stuff, liars and covetors and gossipers. And at the end of it, what does he say? He says, such were some of you. I mean, the reason we have compelling hope is because we were part of this, this race of humanity. Every single one of us, without exemption, was part of this, this unbreakable cycle of sin and condemnation and death because every single neighbor you've ever had, whether you have a great neighbor in your neighborhood or a bad neighbor in your neighborhood, every single one is a sinner. And every single person you've ever met and that ever lived is going to experience this same cycle because they're a sinner they will be condemned by a holy god and because they're condemned by a holy god and because they are sinners they will die the death rate has stayed the same even during coronavirus numbers out to get you but that one number that one for one correspondence birth and death life and sin and condemnation and death 
is this ongoing frustration that is only broken when this new humanity emerges under her leader and her head and her eternal Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, because it goes from sin and condemnation and death to righteousness and justification and life. Righteousness that is Jesus' perfect righteousness. Justification that is our Father's promise of right standing before Him and life that is described in verse 21 as grace reigning through righteousness to eternal life. Eternal life. More blessings than the ruin that Adam ever brought to us are given to us by Jesus. More grace, more blessings, more access, more glory, more wonder, more praise, more power. All of it, every blessing in the heavenlies is ours because of Christ. Because in Christ, He starts a new race and a new people that enter not by birth but by faith. And we find in this new life a new humanity and a new destiny under our second Adam. And it is not just a recovery of what our first father lost. We recognize in every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies purchased for us by Christ that we have been totally transformed into a reality in union with our Lord, in solidarity with Him that is infinitely greater than the garden. Grace is more. And so how do you see yourself? Not just an individual Christian grateful for the conviction the Lord has brought into your life and the transformative effect that His grace has had on you as you continue to seek to follow Jesus and become more Christ-like. But you and I are part of something of such extraordinary eternal destiny because of this second Adam, because of this human man, Jesus Christ, the the one from Nazareth, because of His obedience, that gift of grace is ours. Father, thank You for Your Word and for these two earth-shattering and defining realities. Such a richness in Your Word, far more than we could ever plumb. But may we see the answer to that simple question, who who are we? And how could one man's death affect so many? And may that bring all the glory and honor to Jesus Christ for the work that He has done in redeeming a people, in starting a new humanity that we're a part of now, that we will be part of for all eternity. Father, if there's any here who do not know this gift of eternal life, who found themselves because of sin in their own heart by nature and by choices that they have made, in need of this forgiveness, in need of this righteous declaration, in need of of the forgiveness that can only be found in Jesus, may they enter into this new humanity because of a miraculous work that You do in their heart even now. By faith, may they know the Son of God who lived for them and died for them. Bring them into Your family and may know 
May they know the glory of Your grace and be part of what we all are a part of. Our destiny transformed. Our humanity made new. A people forever devoted to Your praise. In Jesus' matchless name, Amen.